0: This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic,
1: either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy.
2: Hi, my name is Akil Sud, reporting from now at ACR 22. Today, I'd like to discuss abstract 1609, which looks at the impact of comorbidities in patients with ankylosing spondylitis, and its association with functional status and disease activity. Comorbidities are more common in patients with inflammatory arthritis, including ankylosing spondylitis. It is suspected that the presence and combination of certain comorbid conditions can influence patient outcomes. An abstract 1609 specifically looks at this area. Using the SOAS registry, they identified a cohort of patients with ankylosing spondylitis. Using clustering methods, they identified clusters of patients with AS defined by the presence of certain comorbid conditions. And in this study, they identified five unique clusters defined by these conditions, including depression, hypertension, and uveitis. And the cluster defined by the presence of depression was found to have higher disease activity and worse functional status compared to the group with no comorbidities. And these findings are really important. They come in light of the recent findings, recommendations, from ASAS ULAR, which states that the absence of response to treatment should prompt re-evaluation of the diagnosis and consideration of the presence of comorbidities. So next time you have a patient with AS with difficult, difficult, difficult to control activity, it's important to consider optimization of the comorbidities as well as controlling the underlying
3: inflammation.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2022. It's been a wonderful hybrid conference so far with lots of new exciting information popping up. Rheumatic diseases, including spondyloarthritis, commonly affect women of childbearing age. We try to achieve disease control when prescribing medications to these patients and monitor side effects or response to therapy. But in addition to these interventions, we also consider reproductive health issues that can have an impact on fertility. One of the abstracts on this topic that caught my interest is abstract number 1673. And joining me today is Dr. Sabrina Hamroon to talk more about their study entitled Preconceptional and Said Treatment Exposure is associated with a significantly longer time to conception in women with spondyloarthritis. Hello, Sabrina, and welcome to the discussion.
4: Hello, thank you.
1: Could you tell us more about your um, research? Could you walk us through it? Uh, you know, important things, um, important points uh, that you think you know, you want to tell the, those listeners out there?
4: Um, yes, of course. Um, this uh, study uh, aimed to determine factors associated with time to conception in women with uh, spastrophysic arthritis. Um, this uh, this disease affects regularly uh, women of childbearing age, and we would like to understand more on their reproductive health and uh, factors um, uh, impacted the fertility in women with the SPA. And uh, to meet this uh, goal and this uh, research question, we um, did an analysis of uh, patients who were included in the GR2 cohort, which is a French cohort, an observational prospective multi cohort in France. Um, and we... Um, the, the, the main endpoint was uh, time-to-conception, and we did a, a Cox model, or survival model, uh, to uh, understand factors associated with time-to-conception in these uh, women. And uh, in the analysis, we found that um, when we uh, analyzed the impact of um, disease duration, um, disease activity, uh, current smoking, uh, body mass index, age of patients and exposition to different treatments, we found that the the two factors uh, which were associated with time to conception are uh, age of the patients and uh, also the the exposition to NSAIDs. Um, Patients who were exposed to NSAIDs had an increased uh, time to conception 2.6 fold in comparison uh, with women who were not. Um, so the 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 main message of this study is to to keep in mind the the deleterious impact of NSAIDs on fertility, and to discuss the um, the discontinuation, the supervised discontinuation of NSAIDs in women with SPA who uh, have difficulties to conceive.
1: Okay, so thank you, thank you for that. Um. It, I understand that this is the first among um it's you know it's uh, it's study in regards to looking into fertility issues in women with AXPAR, right. Uh,
4: there are um, we we performed a systematic review of the literature on this topic. And uh, we found that of 21 studies on um, reproductive health in women with SPA, only four addressed uh, fertility. And uh, these uh, studies were all retrospective studies. Uh, more recently, there is uh, just one study that um, look at the fertility with the prospective design, but there is, uh, there is limited knowledge on this topic in women with SPA.
1: Okay. So it's really, yeah, it's really uh, a good topic because usually we see, well, before, because we, we you know, it was initially thought of that um, spondyloarthritis is more commonly seen in men. And now we're getting to see the differences in among the genders in terms of presentation and now um, in terms of fertility issues. So um it, it gives us more information um about you know how we could how uh, the importance of giving or considering um giving these medications to our female patients because sometimes you know when we when we give the medications or most of the time we all, only consider um the after you know like um, not the preconceptional considerations but you know just um, when, when patients get pregnant or, you know, you, those, those kinds of, um, considerations. So, um, were you, uh, was there any possible, um, explanation or did you see any possible explanation as to why NSAIDs were associated with a longer time to conception? I mean, age, yeah, we, it's understandable, but um, with regards to NSAIDs, were you surprised, or um, was there any explanation that you could think of um, in terms of the results?
4: Um, yes, uh, the the results are not uh, really uh, surprising, given the the disovulation uh, described in the literature with uh, NSAIDs. NSAIDs. Um, have an effect on prostaglandins, and uh, prostaglandins are um, involved in both ovulation and implantation of the fetus. So uh, that's why uh, NSAIDs have a negative impact on uh, fertility uh, and that's uh, what we see in this study. Uh, there is also in the literature a description of those um, effects of uh, NSAIDs, especially uh, meloxicam. And uh, in the study they found that uh, there is a dose effect of meloxicam on disovulation. So um, there are some observations of uh, this uh, negative impact in the literature, uh, but it is the the first time we uh, describe this in uh, SPA patients.
1: Yeah, right, yeah, good. Um, and in your and it was really seen in your cohort, right? Yes. Um, okay. So you have mentioned about meloxicam. Um, I don't know if it's also part of this study, but um, were you able to see that or uh, characterize the type of NSAIDs that your patients in your cohort received, that um, including? the Dose probably or um, the duration that the NSAIDs were given?
4: Uh, there are, uh, uh, unfortunately, there is uh, some missing data on the dose of NSAIDs uh, patients uh, used in this study. Um, so we don't have uh, enough information to, uh, to address this, uh, this topic um and regarding the the type of NSAIDs, um we could not do um, sensitivity analysis to uh, um, evaluate the specific impact of each class of NSAIDs because of a lack of uh, statistical power given the limited sample size uh, we just have 88 women so we could not uh, do um, all the analysis we, we like to do but but we we plan the the cohort is ongoing now uh so we we wish to have more and more patients in this cohort to uh have more uh, statistical power and to do uh, more uh, to refine the results to to, to do more uh, statistical analysis to refine the results but it's, it's a good question
1: yeah actually i was going to my My next question was actually what you answered. I was going to ask if there were plans for future investigation since um as you've mentioned, there's a, uh the the study has a small sample size, but you know um it 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 creates uh, you know even in uh, on the practical side of things, like for me, I would when it, when I saw your um your your study. I was like, okay, um, you know, maybe we we should really consider these things, including uh, medications, particularly among our young patients. And we know, like, NSAIDs are one of the first line therapies that we give for spondyloarthritis. So, um, it's it's really a good study. So thank, thank you. you, thank you for doing that. Okay, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> all right. So, um. I just have um, a last question before we probably wrap up the discussion. So what do you think will be the impact of, although the sample size is still small and the study is still ongoing, but what do you think will be the impact of your findings in, um, in the NSAID prescribing practices of rheumatologists towards their female spondyloarthritis patients?
4: Uh, I wish that uh, rheumatologists will keep, just keep in mind the negative impact of NSAIDs on fertility in patients, uh, in SPA patients, and to, to, discur- to discuss on a case-by-case basis the, um, the possibility to switch uh, to a, a therapeutic switch in women who uh, have um, difficulties to conceive for a long time and uh, without any other source of subfertility than a regular use of NSAIDs, I think that uh, we we should have this in mind that uh, NSAIDs could be a source of subfertility, and to to discuss uh, for every patient really on the, on a case by case basis uh, the indication of a switch uh, of a thera- of a therapeutic switch. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so you've, you've really raised a good point there with regards to the NSAIDs as, you know, a, con- a possible consideration for um, taking a longer time to conception or in terms of fertility. Um, and yes, I do agree that, you know, it's really an individualized um, treatment and, you um, it's, I guess it's really the shared decision-making process between the physician yes. and, the, and the patient as well.
4: We also have to to, um, to consider the age of the patients. If a woman has more than 35 years old, for example, and has difficulties to conceive for a long time, I think that uh, the, the uh, therapeutic switch uh, could be favorable for them. Uh, so yes it's always uh, a shared decision with uh, patients
1: okay so um, thank you very much Sabrina for joining us today and sharing your time with us to you know to discuss more about your research and we we will look out for more of the, um of your uh, your your findings in in the future um, thank you. so <laughs> thank you very much okay so um, that has been a very good discussion about um, abstract 1673. And I would like to thank again, Dr. Sabrina Hamroon, sorry, for joining us today and sharing her time with us. This has been Sheila Reyes. Um, follow me on Twitter at Roomarampa and tune in to Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2022. Thank you.
5: so welcome my name is professor peter nash from the school of medicine at university beautiful downtown brisbane in australia and we're reporting for room now at acr convergence in philadelphia 2022. today i want to talk, tackle a very topical area and that's the effect of gender on axe they uh, are a conglomerate of 24 countries led by spain netherlands argentina have looked at 4,200 patients with Axpar. They split them into two and a half thousand who had axial disease, a thousand with psoriatic arthritis, about 430 with Axpar but peripheral arthritis. And they looked at the outcome measures to test whether females in particular had the changes that we're now seeing in psoriatic arthritis where they have higher baseline disease activity and a lesser response to therapy. So they looked at all the usual measures. They looked at BASDI, they looked at BASFI, they looked at ASAS Health Index, they looked at ASDAS, and they showed quite nicely across these different groups that females in general had worse function, worse disease activity, higher BASDIs, higher ASDASs than males in the same cohort and that they ask the question what measures are not affected by gender and can be used to as an outcome measure in these particular situations CRP is not affected by gender and ASDAS is not affected by gender and they're the two and that's the take-home bottom line use CRP and ASTAS to assess these patients and understand that the other measures like BASDI, Basfi and ASAS Health Index will be higher in females than in males. So the take home message, use your CRP, use your ASDAS to look at disease activity in AXPAR patients and you'll be fine. Peter Nash signing off from Philadelphia.
1: I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2022. Hydroxychloroquine is a very important drug for lupus because prior studies have already shown its numerous benefits, including decreasing disease flares. Unless absolutely contraindicated, hydroxychloroquine should be given to all patients with lupus. Due to the risk of retinopathy, the 2016 ophthalmology guidelines recommend using hydroxychloroquine at less than or equal to 5 mg per kilogram of actual body weight, which is equivalent to about less than 400 mg per day in most patients. But what is the impact of this dose-lowering of hydroxychloroquine? In the abstract sessions on Monday, Dr. Jacqueline Nestor will present the results of their study entitled Hydroxychloroquine Dosing Less Than 5 Milligram Per Kilogram Per Day Leads to Increased Hospitalizations for SLE Flare," with Abstract Number 1654. The primary objective of the study was to determine the impact of hydroxychloroquine dose on the risk of hospitalizations for SLE flares. So they did a case crossover study within the Mass General Brigham SLE cohort, and they identified patients who were prescribed hydroxychloroquine between January 2011 and December 2021. Patients included were those who were hospitalized for an SLE flare, While using hydroxychloroquine, and the exposures of interests were one average weight-based hydroxychloroquine dose, so this was either less than or equal to five MKD or more than five MKD, or an average, oh sorry, and an average non-weight-based hydroxychloroquine dose of less than four hundred or more than four hundred milligrams per day. Basically, they looked into the dose of hydroxychloroquine when SLE patients were hospitalized for a flare. Study results show that low-dose hydroxychloroquine, that's less than 5 MKD for the weight-based dose and less than 400 mg per day on the non-weight-based dose, were both associated with increased hospitalizations for SLE flares with an adjusted odds ratio of 4.41 and 3.48, respectively. How are these findings relevant to everyday practice? Some limitations of the study that the authors noted were the incomplete information on medication adherence or reasons why patients were on low-dose hydroxychloroquine. This study made me reevaluate whether my patients are indeed receiving adequate doses of hydroxychloroquine. I hope further investigations are carried out to elucidate robust data on this topic, including characterizing the lupus flare in terms of the severity or organ involvement, apart from the limitations mentioned earlier. Hydroxychloroquine is a very important drug for lupus and issues on retinal toxicity with cumulative doses and is, is an important factor to consider in dosing. Hence, we need to keep in mind the benefit-risk ratio of giving the drug and, of course, shared decision-making with our patients. Also, regular monitoring of side effects should be included in the equation. So with that, I just throw this question out there. Are your lupus patients receiving optimal doses of hydroxychloroquine? Follow me on Twitter at Roomarampa and tune into RoomNow for more reports and videos of the ACR convergence 2022. Thank you.
0: I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for RoomNow Now at ACR22. There have been lots of interesting papers uh, looking at new therapies, and the area that we are really interested in is the use of uh, jack inhibitors. These have come along and uh, has really uh, revolutionized some of the treatments, especially in areas such as spondyloarthritis. One of the concerns that we have is about the incidence of um, major cardiovascular events or venous thromboembolism, and there was a Study uh, presented here at ACR22 post uh, 510, where the, uh, they looked at the use of uh, Upadacitinib, which is a selective JAK1 inhibitor, uh, across indications in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and also ankylosing spondylitis. And here they had over 6,000 patients who uh, were recruited into the studies, uh, and this involved nine different Studies And they look particularly into the aspect of major cardiovascular events, MACE, and also VTEs. When you look at the population study, the 40 to 50% of these patients had two or more risk factors for cardiovascular events. And also more than a quarter of them were above the age of 65. This immediately would put them at risk of having cardiovascular events and also a possible venous thromboembolism. What was interesting in this study across uh, the nine studies when they pulled the data was the actual incidence of uh, MACE was low. Uh, There were none in the the ankylosing spondylitis group and 41 in the rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis group. When they looked at these patients who had MACE in the RA and PSA group, they were enriched for risk factors. So these were standard risk factors uh, such as hypertension, uh, and diabetes that, that predispose them to having these risks. The number of patients that uh, who did not have the risk was actually quite small uh, in the people who developed maize on the treatment. So this is uh, an interesting study. It adds to our knowledge uh, of uh, how we would manage our patients and make, making sure that we assess and also treat their risk factors if they are on treatment with a JAK inhibitor. There was also a study uh, at uh, 0404, uh, which is a study looking at another jack inhibitor, a pan jack inhibitor, called tofacitinib. Uh, and here, this is a, an oral uh, jack inhibitor, and they were looking at one of the aspects, uh, which is uh, enthesitis. Uh, this paper really uh, showed that it's actually quite, sometimes quite challenging to assess enthesitis, especially when patients also have tender and swollen joints and the presence of tender and swollen joints may actually affect the outcome uh, when, when patients are assessed for the enthesitis. Nevertheless, this study showed that in patients who won the tofacitinib arm, there was improvement in the uh, costochondral and also Achilles uh, enthesitis, uh, taking into account the number of tender and swollen joints they had, and, and these patients did better compared to placebo. Another area that uh, where JAK inhibitors are coming in in the rheumatic diseases are in the area of uh, recycling uh, TNF inhibitors. So we usually, in the past, would have used TNF inhibitors as first-line treatment, and the question is, do we then recycle with another TNF inhibitor, or do we switch mode of action? And uh, in poster 1588, they tried to answer these questions where patients had adalimumab as their first-line TNF, and then they would switch either to tenazep or to a JAK inhibitor. And in this study, it showed that there was a slight uh, improvement uh, in, in patients who were switched to Jack inhibitor in terms of some of the outcomes compared to switching to another uh, TNF inhibitor, namely Etanercept. Nevertheless, there were some patients who did well on cycling to another TNF. So this study again shows us that there are certain patients who would benefit from a switch, and usually in clinical practice, this would be some of our patients who had primary failure to the first TNF or in reverse event, uh, whereas patients who would continue on the uh, TNF inhibitor would usually be people who had a secondary failure. This is again uh, an area where we would need to do further studies, especially with the advent of more therapies uh, such as JEC inhibitors in our clinical practice. I'm Anthony Chan, reporting here for Room Now at ACR 22.
6: Good afternoon from Philadelphia. It's day two of ACR Convergence here with Room Now. I'm going to talk to you about one of the Ignite sessions, Abstract One Zero One Two. Dr. Alexis Ogdi gave a great uh, Ignite chat about her abstract, which looked at opioid use in ankylosing spondylitis and um, and. Uh, psoriatic arthritis, and what she found was there was about uh, about a quarter of these patients were using opioids, 21% in in PSA, 27% in SPA. And what she found was uh, looking at who are the patients that use opioids compared to those that don't. What she found was, not surprisingly, these are patients that are sicker, that have more comorbidities, more likely to be smokers. But um, what she also then wanted to ask is, is there a difference between the way they access medical care, the, the medications that they're on, could it be that these patients are using opioids instead of um, our classic rheumatic treatment? And that actually was not the case. When they looked at it, they found that patients were more likely to be seen by more physicians, were likely to receive at least as good of uh, medical care in terms of being on the right medicines, often even on more of the, these medicines. So. Um, what is it about these groups? It's not just that they're necessarily having opioids placed on, in place of these um, disease-modifying agents, but there might be something that we need to do a better job in identifying these patients and treating these patients appropriately so that they are not using opioids to treat rheumatic disease. Have a great day from ACR.
0: I'm Anthony Chan, Consultant Rheumatologist from London United Kingdom reporting here for Room Now at ACR22. We've had a lot of uh, interesting presentations at ACR22 and one of the topics that I'm really interested in is how we can reduce delays to diagnosis. One of the issues we have in the field of axial spondyloarthritis is is the long delay where patients can spend years prior to a diagnosis. Here in the United Kingdom, the average time is eight and a half years. We have a project nationally called the gold standard project to try to reduce that to one year one of the interesting presentations at the acr 22 uh comes from dr nelly zia who is uh very kindly been able to join us today and she's going to We want to talk to her about two of her, uh, her abstracts first is one five one two and then we'll be followed by one five one seven so uh nelly welcome to um our session today. Thank you for joining us.
7: Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for the invitation.
0: So I was very interested to read your your poster presentation and the abstract 1512, where you have worked with uh, quite a few centres in a few different countries uh, in your area to look at how, using different criteria, you can try to find the best solution to reduce delays to diagnosis. I wonder whether you could take us through uh, your your findings in one five one
7: two, yeah. So uh, diagnostic delay, as you said, Anthony, is uh, is a new universal problem, but there's a lot of heterogeneity between the different countries and the different regions of the world. So in the Middle Eastern Arab countries, it's around uh, seven years, but it's really uh, variable between uh, the countries. So what we wanted to do is to see if the available referral strategies uh, that were uh, published worldwide can be uh, applied to our region. Why do we want to apply it to our region? Because uh, we have uh, reasons to believe that we have different uh, systems. So first, the healthcare system is different. Uh, patients go uh, to different specialists. They have access to specialists, direct access to specialists. However, uh, many times they go to the wrong specialist. They go to the orthopedic surgeon or to the neurosurgeon, to the neurologist. And this way might contribute to the delay more. They also go to the pharmacist to get NSAIDs over-the-counter, and this may also delay the diagnosis further. So this is one reason. The second reason is that also HLA-B27, which is a very important parameter in the referral strategy, is, has a lower prevalence in our countries, and so its utility in the referral might be different. So this is why we decided to see if the published referral strategies are applicable to our country. So uh, we included uh, seven uh, seven countries in uh, in the study, and uh, uh, every center uh, talked to the referral system around him. So the uh, the doctors that use really send to them the patients. So they asked them to send them low back pain who were suspicious of uh, inflammatory nature. So we didn't give them like specific uh, uh, criteria, but uh, we told them in real life, who would you send to the rheumatologist? And so uh, we wanted this was done on purpose to see uh, what happens in real life. So the referring uh, physician sent the, the patients to the doctor and the doctor opinion, the rheumatologist opinion was the gold standard. And so we looked at all the parameters. This was prospective. We included 515 patients from seven Middle Eastern Arab countries. And these patients uh, were checked uh, clinically. And we did also hla 27 And we did uh, MRI of the sacroiliac joint. And we, uh, we did the final diagnosis by the rheumatologist. And the test was to see which referral strategy works best. So uh, for the 515 patients, uh, 48% had axial spa, 43% had no axial spa, so confirmed no axial spa, there was an alternative diagnosis, and in 9%, the diagnosis was still uncertain. So, the optimal referral strategy was the master strategy. So, we tested 10 10 strategies for this. So, the master strategy is uh, based on inflammatory back pain, on good response to NSAID, on positive HLAB27, and on SPA family history. Now, we looked furthermore to see if we remove HLAB27. So, if we choose a strategy without HLAB27, And uh, then the RADAR uh, strategy was the best. So the RADAR strategy is based on inflammatory back pain, good response to NSAID, and any extra musculoskeletal manifestation like psoriasis, IBD, or uveitis. So we hope that uh, when we identify the correct referral strategy, now the second step is to implement it in our community and uh, hopefully reduce the diagnostic delay.
0: This is an uh, excellent work. Uh, obviously it's real-world um, data, which is obviously very helpful. And uh, going forward, knowing that your prevalence of B27 is quite low, would you think that you might be using either the master or radar or a combination uh, in your next step?
7: Yes, so I think it will depend also on uh, the available resources. If we have access to hla 27 so we have like some countries who have a high uh, level economy and some with a very uh, low or, or middle income uh, economy. So I think that uh, the hla 27 has a low prevalence. However, the specificity is very high. So once it's, uh, it's positive, then you are like more than 95% sure that the patient has an axial spot. So uh, maybe uh, when there is a possible uh, good resources, uh, good socioeconomic level, it's always good to have objective measures and it's easier also for the referring physicians. So the master would be a good option. However, in countries where you have a low economy income, low income, uh, so you can use without the HLA B twenty seven, but you have to be more. Um, so you can use a radar strategy, but you have to teach the referring physicians about the extra musculoskeletal manifestation. So you have to ask them to ask about psoriasis, IBD, and uh, uveitis.
0: So one of the things that came up quite uh, strong was enteritis uh, in your in your table uh, in the XPAR versus the non xpar group. How good are we, do you think, uh, in training our colleagues in mm-hmm. detecting anticitis as a, as a you know as a predictor of future expa?
7: Yeah, so it's uh, it could be anything. It could be like uh, people may label uh, fibromyalgia as uh, as mm. So uh, I I agree that this parameter is not very easy to implement mm-hmm. in uh, in referring in referral strategy.
0: And also, you had nine percent of people who were undefined in in your in your practice. Do you repeat their scans, or you know how would you manage those people who you clearly were kind of uh, in between, where they were, were still a bit undecided?
7: Yes, th- these people are people who need to be closely followed up. So we need to monitor them uh, properly to explain to them that this could be axial SPA or not. So we need to uh, monitor you closely. Of course, uh, in the um, uh, if you have a high clinical suspicion, we repeat uh, MRI of the sacroiliac joint around one year later. Uh, nevertheless, we can also benefit from new biomarkers, and so maybe this is a good introduction to the second. Uh, this
0: comes to the next, uh, which comes to the next study, which uh, is very interesting. This is. Uh abstract 1517 so uh, where you looked at the utility of um uh, uh, ntcd uh, cd74 uh, and you looked at different su- uh, isotypes of the uh, immunoglobulin so can you just give us a background what made you choose this uh, cd74 yes
7: yeah, so the idea was uh, like discussed maybe a few years ago uh, when we presented our first review that HLA-B27 was low in Middle Eastern countries and that we need a new biomarker to help us diagnose our patients and uh, reduce the diagnostic delay. So our German uh, colleagues in uh, Hanover and German, Professor Thorsten Witte and uh, Professor Xenophon Baraliakos, were working on uh, this, uh, and the, the CD74 antibodies and they uh, proposed that we test it in our population. Uh, the problem actually was less uh, of, uh, of, of a problem in, in Europe because HLAB27 was a very good biomarker. However, in our countries we needed a, a different biomarker. So what we did, we did a first study that we published in uh, 2019. We compared people with confirmed axial spa to healthy blood donors, and we found a good association between ntcd 74 and this, um, uh, uh, and axial spa. However, uh, around the same time, there were even other studies that confirmed this association and other studies like studies from China and the study from uh, Netherlands who found that there was no association. So we started thinking, what was the problem? Why did we find an association? And uh, some of other teams found an association and others didn't. So, of course, one of the um, first ideas that come to mind is a genetic background. So the Chinese study didn't find any association, whereas Middle Eastern studies like from Egypt and European studies from Russia, from Western Europe, found an association. So we thought maybe this could be genetic. And the second thing is that the comparator arm was also different. So the, the Dutch study compared axial SPA to low back pain. This was a space cohort, this uh, arthritis co- code early cohort. So we, we thought that we should test our uh, these antibodies in the population that we intend to use it later on. So in population with low back pain, not in the population comparing to completely healthy blood donors. So the, the really uh, diagnostic utility of the test was, would be a patient with low back pain, and uh, we are not sure if it's a SPA or not. Like the 9% uh, that we were talking about, That we uh, the diagnosis remain uh, uncertain. So we uh, redesigned the study, and we wanted to include actually uh, all the countries that were uh, uh, included in the, in the previous one, so the seven countries. However, uh, there are very strict restriction on... Uh, Exporting uh, human data, so human samples. So from other countries, it was impossible to send the blood samples to Hanover. So uh, this is why we ended up having two countries, Iraq and Lebanon, to include the uh, patients in this study. So this is this was also a prospective multi-center study. We included patients who had uh, suspicious low back pain. And uh, we tested them for uh, the, the traditional tests, like a clinical uh, CRP, MRI, sacroiliac joint, HLV27. And also we tested them for the three types of NTCD74, IgE, IgA, IgG, and IgG4. And uh, the, the gold standard was the diagnosis of uh, the rheumatologist at the end of the day. And we tested the diagnostic properties. And we found, again, an association between uh, anti-CD74 uh, IgA, and the diagnosis of axial SPA, so around 45% had axial SPA in that, uh, in that sample, so uh, it, it included the 116 uh, patients. So uh, this is quantitatively, so it was associated. The other isotypes, so IDG, IDG4, were all also higher in axial SPA compared to low back pain and compared to healthy blood donors as well. But the difference did not reach statistical significance. Now, we use this quantitative data to calculate our local threshold of uh, positivity using the curve. And uh, using this uh, locally derived uh, cutoff point, we found that uh, axial spasm was associated with IGA anti CD seventy four was positive in fifty six percent compared to twenty five percent in low back pain, and so this association was still significant. And the likelihood ratio, so the sensitivity was fifty six percent, specificity was seventy five percent, and the likelihood ratio was two point two. Now. Um, the association with HLA-B27 was stronger. The likelihood ratio was uh, 36. So we looked at patients who were really our problem, so patients with negative HLA-B27. So we studied also, we did the same thing in this, uh, this subpopulation, and we find that the likelihood ratio, the positive likelihood ratio was uh, 2.7, which was still very good. So we think that based on this study, which needs really to be uh, also confirmed in, in other countries from the Middle East, that if you have a patient with uh, negative HLA-B27, the diagnosis is still uncertain. Uh, adding ntcd 74 will help uh, confirm the, the, the diagnosis. And oh, very, the diagnostic um, delay.
0: Excellent, I think a likelihood ratio of 2.23 uh, with your IgA. Um, would be, certainly be in uh, you know, an avenue to pursue, especially if you already have a very low prevalence of HLA-B27 in the countries uh, where you work. Um, obviously, uh, one of the issues you you raised was about the access to the tests. Do you think this will become something that will be routinely available in time, uh, testing the CD74, where where, where so you
7: the the, the 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 test is now commercially available. You ha- we have it, uh, we can uh, get the test. Uh, the problem is that you need also to validate the cutoff locally. Because, mm. uh, also, I didn't uh, talk about it, much a complicated thing. We also took a, a sample of uh, healthy blood donor from Germany and our healthy blood donor to see the, the baseline uh, levels of C D 74 And our baseline in healthy blood donor was, was lower. So the cutoff that you can use in Europe may not be the same cutoff that you can use in, uh, in Lebanon, and in Iraq, and Egypt or, or other countries. So I think that this is now the major um, uh, obstacle for uh, using this uh, test uh, at large scale because really the cutoff needs to be validated on, on larger level in different populations. Uh,
0: excellent. I mean, uh, you're doing validation and you're making it... Uh, um suitable for your local population so what's the future i mean it's 7.1 years i think uh, if i read on your on your study for as 5.9 in total for everybody but 7.1 for the uh the ex group so going forward what do you think would be the combination do you have a bit of master a bit of b27 a bit of cd74 what what combination would you you think you'll be using in terms of clinical and laboratory criteria to try to uh, reduce uh, your time to diagnosis
7: yes I think that uh, the first uh, the most uh, uh, useful uh, parameter uh, is still the uh, clinical pa- parameter so you have inflammatory back pain that is recurrent in all referral strategies in all uh, in all all systems that this is the the main criteria and I think this is this can be used in uh, Uh, valuable campaigns, awareness campaigns, contact with our referral, referring physicians. So as I said in the beginning, the referral system, the healthcare system is different. So we need to really create awareness among these uh, specialists to see the patient as first line. So they can be aware that in case of inflammatory back pain, what is inflammatory back pain? Maybe ask a question or two, so more good response to NSAIDs, their family history or extra musculoskeletal manifestations. And it would be the simplest way to refer the patient. So if we want to add a biomarker, we need to do like small, some cost effectiveness studies. So so far, for example, CD74, we, we should not be very, um, very high cost, but uh, we don't know yet. So what we did was, uh, was not a cost effectiveness study. But I think that first, uh, awareness on clinical parameters, especially inflammatory back pain. Second would be extra musculoskeletal manifestation. Available biomarkers, already CRP, like uh, 50% of uh, axial SPA group were CRP positive, whereas uh, less than 20 were CRP positive in the control group. Uh, HLAB27, if, uh, if positive, then it, it's great. If it's negative, then you will need a second biomarker. And I think that at that time, the CD74 would be useful.
0: Well, thank you very much uh, for a very comprehensive uh, study, um, both clinical and laboratory. And I think globally, mm-hmm. we're all driving towards a common goal to reduce delays to diagnosis, to reduce uh, morbidity and suffering for our patients. and. What is important is for that we adapt to our local uh, situation in terms of uh, population, understanding of our population, and also the resources that we have. So, uh, Nelly, thanks very much for your time. I hope you will enjoy the rest of ACR uh, Twenty Two, and uh, thank you for your time. So, I'm Anthony Chan reporting for Room Now uh, here at ACR
3: Twenty Two.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2022. It's been a wonderful hybrid conference so far with lots of new exciting information popping up. Rheumatic diseases, including spondyloarthritis, commonly affect women of childbearing age. We try to achieve disease control when prescribing medications to these patients and monitor side effects or response to therapy. But in addition to these interventions, we also consider reproductive health issues that can have an impact on fertility. One of the abstracts on this topic that caught my interest is abstract number 1673, and joining me today is Dr. Sabrina Hamroon to talk more about their study entitled, Preconceptional NSAID Treatment Exposure is Associated with a Significantly Longer Time to Conception in Women with Spondyloarthritis. Hello, Sabrina, and welcome to the discussion. Hello. Thank you. Could you tell us more about your um, research? Could you walk us through it? Uh, you know, important things, um, important points uh, that you think you know you want to tell the those listeners out there.
4: Um, yes, of course. Um, this uh, study uh, aimed to determine factors associated with time to conception in women with polycystic uh, arthritis. Um, this uh, this disease affects regularly uh, women of childbearing age, and we would like to understand more on their reproductive health and uh, factors um, uh, impacted the fertility in women with the SPA. And uh, to meet this uh, goal and this uh, research question. We um, did an analysis of uh, patients who were included in the GR2 cohort, which is a French cohort an observational prospective multicentric cohort in France. Um, and we, um, the, the, the main endpoint was uh, time to conception. And we did a, a Cox model or survival model uh, to uh, understand factors associated with time to conception in these uh, women. And uh, in the analysis, we found that um, when we uh, analyze the impact of um, desideration, um, disease activity, uh, current smoking, uh, body mass index, age of patients and exposition to different treatments, we found that the the two factors uh, which were associated with time to conception are uh, age of the patients and uh, also the the exposition to NSAIDs. Um, Patients who were exposed to NSAIDs had an increased uh, time to conception 2.6 fold in comparison uh, with women who were not. Um, so, the, the, the main message of this study is to, to keep in mind the, the deleterious impact of NSAIDs on fertility and to discuss the, um, the discontinuation, the supervised discontinuation of NSAIDs in women with SPA who uh, have difficulties to conceive.
1: Okay, so thank you. Thank you for that. Um... I understand that this is the first among um, its, you know, its, uh, its study in regards to looking into fertility issues in women with AXPAR, right? Uh,
4: there are, um, we, we performed a systematic review of the literature on this topic. And uh, we found that of 21 studies on um, reproductive health in women with SPA, only four addressed uh, fertility. And uh, these uh, studies were all retrospective studies. Uh, More recently, there is uh, just one study that um, looks at the fertility with the prospective design. But there is is limited knowledge on this topic in women with
1: SPA. Okay. So it's really, yeah, it's really uh, a good topic because usually we see, well, before, because we, we, you know, it was initially thought of that um, spondyloarthritis is more commonly seen in men. And now we're getting to see the differences in among the genders in terms of presentation and now um, in terms of fertility issues. So um it it gives us more information um about you know how we could how uh, the importance of giving or considering um giving these medications to our female patients because sometimes you know when we when we give the medications or most of the time we all, only consider um the after you know like um, not the preconceptional considerations but you know just um, when, when patients get pregnant or, you know, you, those, those kinds of, um, considerations. So, um, were you, uh, was there any possible, um, explanation or did you see any possible explanation as to why NSAIDs were associated with a longer time to conception? I mean, age, yeah, we, it's understandable, but um, with regards to NSAIDs, were you surprised or um, was there any explanation that you could think of um, in terms of the results?
4: Um, yes, uh, the, the results are not uh, really uh, surprising. Even the, the disovulation uh, described in the literature with uh, NSAIDs, NSAIDs, um, have an effect on prostaglandins, and uh, prostaglandins are um, involved in both ovulation and implantation of the fetus. So uh, that's why uh, NSAIDs have a negative impact on uh, fertility. Uh, and that's uh, what we see in this study. Uh, there is also in the literature a description of um, a dose effect of uh, NSAIDs, especially uh, meloxicam. And uh, in the study they found that uh, there is a dose effect of meloxicam on disovulation. So um, there are some observations of uh, this uh, negative impact in the literature, uh, but it is the the first time we uh, describe this in uh, SPA patients.
1: Yeah, right, yeah, good. Um, and in your and it was really seen in your cohort, right? Yes. Um, okay. So you've mentioned about meloxicam. Um, I don't know if it's also part of this study, but um, were you able to see the or uh, characterize the type of NSAIDs that your patients in your cohort received, that um, including? The dose, probably, or um, the duration that the NSAIDs were given.
4: Uh, there are uh, uh, unfortunately there is uh, some missing data on the dose of NSAIDs uh, patients uh, used in this study, um, so we don't have uh, enough information to uh, to address this uh, this topic. Um, And regarding the the type of NSAIDs, um, we could not do um, sensitivity analysis to uh, um, evaluate the specific impact of each class of NSAIDs because of a lack of uh, statistical power given the limited sample size. Uh, We just have 88 women, so we could not uh, do um, all the analysis would like to do but okay, but, yeah. but we, we plan the the cohort is ongoing now uh so we we wish to have more and more patients in this cohort to uh have more uh, statistical power and to do uh, more uh, to refine the results to, to, to do more uh, statistical analysis to refine the results but yeah. it's, it's a good question
1: yeah actually i was going to my my next question was actually what you answered. I was going to ask if there were plans for future investigation, since um, as you've mentioned, there's a, uh, the the study has a small sample size. But you know, um, it 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 creates uh, you know even in uh, on the practical side of things. Like for me, I would when it, when I saw your um your your study. I was like, okay, um, you know, maybe we we should really consider these things, including uh, medications, particularly among our young patients. And we know, like, NSAIDs are one of the first line therapies that we give for spondyloarthritis. So, um, it's it's really a good study. So, thank, thank you. you, thank you for doing that. Okay. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> All right. So, um. I I just have um, a last question before we probably wrap up the discussion. So what do you think will be the impact of, although the sample size is still small and the study is still ongoing, but what do you think will be the impact of your findings in, um, in the NSAID prescribing practices of rheumatologists towards their female spondyloarthritis patients?
4: Uh, I wish that uh, rheumatologists will keep just keep in mind the negative impact of NSAIDs on fertility in patients uh, in SPA patients and to to discuss to discuss on a case by case basis the um, the possibility to switch uh, to a, a therapeutic switch in women who uh, have um, difficulties to conceive for a long time and uh, without any other source of subfertility than a regular use of NSAIDs, I think that uh, we we should have this in mind that uh, NSAIDs could be a source of subfertility, and to to discuss uh, for every patient really on a on a case by case basis uh, the indication of a switch uh, of a thera- of a therapeutic switch. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so you've, you've really raised a good point there with regards to the NSAIDs as, you know, a, con- a possible consideration for um, taking a longer time to conception or in terms of fertility. Um, and yes, I do agree that, you know, it's really an individualized um, treatment and, you um, it's, I guess it's really the shared decision making process between the physician yes. and the and the patient as well.
4: We also have to to, um, to consider the age of the patients. If a woman has more than 35 years old, for example, and has difficulties to conceive for a long time. I think that uh, the, the uh, therapeutic switch uh, could be favorable for them. Uh, so yes it's uh, always uh, a shared decision with uh, patients
1: okay so um, thank you very much Sabrina for joining us today and sharing your time with us to you know to discuss more about your research and we we will look out for more of them um, of your uh, your your findings in in the future um, thank you. so <laughs> thank you very much okay so um that has been a very good discussion about um, abstract one six seven three, and I would like to thank again Dr. Sabrina Harun sorry, for joining us today and sharing her time with us. This has been Sheila Reyes. Um, follow me on Twitter at Roomarampa and tune in to Room now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2022. Thank you.
5: So welcome, my name's Professor Peter Nash from the School of Medicine at Griffith University, beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia. And we're reporting for Room Now at ACR Convergence in Philadelphia 2022. Today I wanna tackle a very topical area and that's the effect of gender on AXPAR. They uh, are a conglomerate of 24 countries led by Spain, Netherlands, Argentina, have looked at 4,200 patients with Axpar. They split them into 2,500 who had axial disease, 1,000 with psoriatic arthritis, about 430 with Axpar but peripheral arthritis, and they looked at the outcome measures to test whether females, in particular, had the changes that we're now seeing in psoriatic arthritis, where they have higher baseline disease activity and a lesser response to therapy. So they looked at all the usual measures. They looked at Basdi. they looked at BASFI, they looked at ASAS Health Index, they looked at ASDAS, and they showed quite nicely across these different groups that females in general had worse function, worse disease activity, higher BASDAIs, higher ASDASs than males in the same cohort, and that they asked the question, what measures are not affected by gender and can be used to as an outcome measure in these particular situations CRP is not affected by gender and ASTAS is not affected by gender and they're the two and that's the take-home bottom line use CRP and ASTAS to assess these patients and understand that the other measures like BASDOG, BASFIA and ASAS Health Index will be higher in females than in males. So the take home message, use your CRP, use your ASDAS to look at disease activity in AXPAR patients and you'll be fine. Peter Nash signing off from Philadelphia.
3: Hi.
1: I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR2022. Hydroxychloroquine is a very important drug for lupus because prior studies have already shown its numerous benefits, including decreasing disease flares. Unless absolutely contraindicated, hydroxychloroquine should be given to all patients with lupus. Due to the risk of retinopathy, the 2016 ophthalmology guidelines recommend using hydroxychloroquine at less than or equal to 5 mg per kilogram of actual body weight, which is equivalent to about less than 400 mg per day in most patients. But what is the impact of this dose-lowering of hydroxychloroquine? In the abstract sessions on Monday, Dr. Jacqueline Nestor will present the results of their study entitled Hydroxychloroquine Dosing Less Than 5 Milligram Per Kilogram Per Day Leads to Increased Hospitalizations for SLE Flare," with Abstract Number 1654. The primary objective of the study was to determine the impact of hydroxychloroquine dose on the risk of hospitalizations for SLE flares. So they did a case crossover study within the Mass General Brigham SLE cohort, and they identified patients who were prescribed hydroxychloroquine between January 2011 and December 2021. Patients included were those who were hospitalized for an SLE flare, while using hydroxychloroquine, and the exposures of interests were one average weight-based hydroxychloroquine dose, so this was either less than or equal to five MKD, or more than five MKD, or an average. Oh, sorry, and an average non-weight-based hydroxychloroquine dose of less than four hundred or more than four hundred milligrams per day. Basically, they looked into the dose of hydroxychloroquine when SLE patients were hospitalized for a flare. Study results show that low-dose hydroxychloroquine, that's less than 5 MKD for the weight-based dose and less than 400 mg per day on the non-weight-based dose, were both associated with increased hospitalizations for SLE flares with an adjusted odds ratio of 4.41 and 3.48, respectively. How are these findings relevant to everyday practice? Some limitations of the study that the authors noted were the incomplete information on medication adherence or reasons why patients were on low-dose hydroxychloroquine. This study made me reevaluate whether my patients are indeed receiving adequate doses of hydroxychloroquine. I hope further investigations are carried out to elucidate robust data on this topic, including characterizing the lupus flare in terms of the severity or organ involvement, apart from the limitations mentioned earlier. Hydroxychloroquine is a very important drug for lupus and issues on retinal toxicity with cumulative doses and is, is an important factor to consider in dosing. Hence, we need to keep in mind the benefit-risk ratio of giving the drug and, of course, shared decision-making with our patients. Also, regular monitoring of side effects should be included in the equation. So with that, I just throw this question out there. Are your lupus patients receiving optimal doses of hydroxychloroquine, Follow me on Twitter at Roomarampa and tune into RoomNow for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2022. Thank you.
0: I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for RoomNow at ACR22. There have been lots of interesting papers uh, looking at new therapies, and the area that we are really interested in is the use of uh, Jack inhibitors. These have come along and uh, has really uh, revolutionized some of the treatments, especially in areas such as spondyloarthritis. One of the concerns that we have is about the incidence of um, major cardiovascular events or venous thromboembolism, and there was a study uh, presented here at ACR22 post-510, where uh, they looked at the use of uh, upadacitinib, which is a selective JAK1 inhibitor, uh, across indications in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and also ankylosing spondylitis. And here they had over 6,000 patients who uh, were recruited into the studies, uh, and this involved nine different Studies, and they look particularly into the aspect of major cardiovascular events, MACE, and also VTEs. When you look at the population study, the 40 to 50% of these patients had two or more risk factors for cardiovascular events. And also more than a quarter of them were above the age of 65. This immediately would put them at risk of having cardiovascular events and also a possible venous thromboembolism. What was interesting in this study across uh, the nine studies, when they pulled the data, was the actual incidence of uh, MACE was low. Uh, There were none in the the ankylosing spondylitis group and 41 in the rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis group. When they looked at these patients who had MACE in the RA and PSA group, they were enriched for risk factors. So these were standard risk factors uh, such as hypertension, uh, and diabetes that, that predispose them to having these risks. The number of patients that, uh, who did not have the risk was actually quite small uh, in the people who developed maize on the treatment. So this is uh, an interesting study. It adds to our knowledge uh, of uh, how we would manage our patients and make, making sure that we assess and also treat their risk factors if they are on treatment with a JAK inhibitor. There was also a study uh, at uh, 0404, uh, which is a study looking at another JAK inhibitor, a pan-JAK inhibitor called tofacitinib. Uh, And here, this is an oral uh, JAK inhibitor, and they were looking at one of the aspects, uh, which is uh, enthesitis. This paper really uh, showed that it's actually quite sometimes quite challenging to assess enthesitis, especially when patients also have tender and swollen joints. And the presence of tender and swollen joints may actually affect the outcome uh, when when patients are assessed for the enthesitis. Nevertheless, this study showed that in patients who, won the tofacitinib arm, there was improvement in the uh, costochondral and also Achilles uh, enthesitis. Uh, taking into account the number of tender and swollen joints they had, and and these patients did better compared to placebo. Another area that uh, where Jak inhibitors are coming in in the rheumatic diseases are in the area of uh, recycling uh, TNF inhibitors. So we usually, in the past, would have used TNF inhibitors as first-line treatment. And the question is, do we then recycle with another TNF inhibitor, or do we switch mode of action? And uh, in poster 1588, they tried to answer these questions where patients had adalimumab as their first-line TNF, and then they would switch either to TANASAP or to a JAK inhibitor. And in this study, it showed that there was a slight uh, improvement uh, in, in patients who were switched to JAK inhibitor in terms of some of the outcomes compared to switching to another uh, TNF inhibitor, namely etanercept. Nevertheless, there were some patients who did well on cycling to another TNF. So this study again shows us that there are certain patients who would benefit from a switch, and usually in clinical practice, this would be some of our patients who had primary failure to the first TNF or an adverse event, uh, whereas patients who would continue on the uh, TNF inhibitor would usually be people who had a secondary failure. This is again uh, an area where we would need to do further studies, especially with the advent of more therapies uh, such as JEC inhibitors in our clinical practice. I'm Anthony Chan, reporting here for Room Now at ACR 22.
6: Good afternoon from Philadelphia. It's day two of ACR Convergence here with Room Now. I'm gonna to talk to you about one of the IGNITE sessions, abstract 1012. Dr. Alexis Agdi gave a great uh, IGNITE chat about her abstract, which looked at opioid use in ankylosing spondylitis and um, and Uh, psoriatic arthritis and what she found was there's about uh, about a quarter of these patients were using opioids 21% in 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 PSA 27% in spa and what she found was uh, looking at who are the patients that use opioids compared to those that don't what she found was not surprisingly these are patients that are sicker that have more comorbidities more likely to be smokers but um, what she also then wanted to ask is, is there a difference between the way they access medical care, the, the medications that they're on? Could it be that these patients are using opioids instead of um, our classic rheumatic treatment? And that actually was not the case. When they looked at it, they found that patients were more likely to be seen by more physicians, were likely to receive at least as good of uh, medical care in terms of being on the right medicines, often even on more of the, these medicines. So. Um, what is it about these groups? It's not just that they're necessarily having opioids placed on, in place of these um, disease-modifying agents, but there might be something that we need to do a better job in identifying these patients and treating these patients appropriately so that they are not using opioids to treat rheumatic disease. Have a great day from
3: ACR.